Hello and welcome to Disrupt TV Show. It is just me today hosting. I'm Ray Wong and uh, I am the founder and CEO of Constellation Research. And of course, more importantly, here it was as your host today. We are on episode number 115. This is a very special healthcare issue. And we're gonna to talk to three awesome transformation change agents in healthcare and really get their perspectives on what's happening and what's going on. Um, it is a panel format today. So I'm gonna introduce everybody very quickly and then jump in uh, talking about what they're each doing. And so you're gonna see them in order and then we're gonna jump into an awesome panel format. So happy Friday, welcome everybody. I'm gonna start with our first guest, Sarah Richardson. And if you know Sarah, she's the CIO of Healthcare Partners, a DaVita medical group. And you can follow her at, on Twitter at Concierge Leader. So C-O-N-C-I-E-R-G-E-L-E-A-D-E-R. Sarah is not only just the CEO of, uh, um, of Healthcare Partners, but more importantly, she has an awesome po podcast, which is actually going viral at the moment, which is the Him SoCal podcast. She's also had a lot of expertise, um, not just as a CEO, divisional CIO, but more importantly, she's been in the space, not just in the California and Nevada markets, but she's been tracking trends. Uh, and these trends are really talking about what's been happening, not just to healthcare leaders, uh, what's happening into patient care, but more importantly, some of the big technology trends. So I'm gonna jump in with you, Sarah, first question, and, uh, and jump in and say, uh, hey, your Hint SoCal podcast has touched on some of the hot tech issues from blockchain to AI to self-awareness areas, as such as happiness and humility. So what are the topics healthcare leaders are talking to you about and where you see the most right now that um, healthcare leaders can show each other and teach each other with? Welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks, Ray. Thanks for having me on the show. The podcast is uh, stemmed really from SoCal Hymns, our chapter, realizing that we have over 3,000 members now. And for us to maintain ourselves as an educational leader and also a voice for others in the industry, but also to be a mentor to other chapters, we really wanted to pull the content that was out there and most important to most HIT professionals. So we invite a SME every single month to um, post our session with us. So we get like Dr. Anthony Chang on, we've had, actually we've got most of you teed up to be on the show, we've had authors, we've had uh, Sajid Ahmed, we've got Sri Bharadaj, we've got this is people that everybody knows in the industry and they, they keep coming on the show, which is fantastic. So it's very conversational, which I love. Um, but the big pieces that are coming out that people are really interested in, we've had people ask about gamification, not just gamification in terms of employee productivity, but gamification in terms of treatment plans and ways to engage patients. And we've got upcoming topics on chatbots and conversational agents, where that's headed in healthcare. Uh, data science continues to be a big deal, and how do you really integrate that into your own organization? Because it makes you really a sales agent, because people are used to mining data the way that they always have. How do you get them to want to use yours? Uh, and traceability of data, and the whole GDPR thing that came out in Europe, and people being curious about, is blockchain the answer to that? How do I actually figure out where things are going? How do we obtain consent for what things are being used for? Um, and all of that stemmed around, is it too late to protect my identity at this age, you know, all the stuff that's out there. So all those things are coming. I would say the other piece that's big is everybody's an advocate and what we do in terms of cybersecurity, the continuation of interoperability, uh, telemedicine, and even the opioid e epidemic, all are things that we will be talking about in the next few months. Wow, some hot, meaty topics. That's, that is amazing. We'll, we'll jump into some of these as well as we jump into the panel session. Um, our next guest uh, is Neil Gomes, and we're going to talk about Neil. He's a, the Chief Digital Officer at Thomas Jefferson University and Jefferson Health. Um, and uh, 
Neil's been in a lot of different places from being, uh, he's the kind of, he's the SVP of technology, innovation and consumer experience and chief and, and the chief digital officer. But more importantly, he's worked in different places, fortune 500 at the Tata group of companies where he's played a lot of roles um, from Tata interactive systems to the Tata group. He's got, a lot of degrees. One of them is instructional design from the University of South Florida. Uh, and more importantly, he's been spending a lot of time changing the patient experience, the consumer experience at Jeff. Now, Neil, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks. Hey. Great to be so, here. And you can follow Neil on Twitter at Neil, N-E-I-L-G-O-M-E-S. I recently had an awesome opportunity to visit you. I think it was two weeks ago, right? Yeah, two weeks uh, ago. <laughs> I visited you at Jeff and then saw the Innovation Labs and some of your team's work. Talk a little bit about what you're doing with patient experience and how you tackle a specific problem with design thinking and smart IT. Sure, yeah. Well, for us, uh, the consumer or the patient in this case, we, we, refer, uh, we use the term consumer because we have students too as part of our consumer space. And we also consider our staff, depending on the solution, as a consumer. So uh, for specifically for patient experience, what we do is we... we we recognize firstly that uh, uh, most other industries and companies within industries that have um, disrupted and transformed those industries uh, are ones that have focused very strongly on the consumer, uh, their, their, their client, um, and in our case, our patient, and then use design thinking, use uh, digital platforms to bring about change and, uh, and, and address uh, patient needs in our case, consumer needs uh, uh, broadly. Uh, and, uh, and, and do it very, very um, effectively in a very agile kind of manner. So that's what we try to do. Uh, so how do we solve some of these problems? Well, firstly, we try to find what the problem is. Uh, you know, we get a lot of folks that come to us and say, hey, I'd like you to make this app or this solution or, this, uh, uh, or, or implement this uh, application. And uh, the first thing we ask them is not, yeah, let's do it. You know? <laughs> uh, instead, we say, well, why? Why do you want that? And uh, sometimes they're taken aback by that. Um, you know, they think that, oh, well, you know, I'm giving you something to do. You should be happy about doing it. But, well, that's not, that's not our uh, ethos kind of and not our, our principle. So what we do is we ask questions. We try to find what the real problem is. In healthcare, fortunately, it's not a very abstract space. So you can actually see the problem. You can experience it. So we do some ethnographic research, spend time in the clinical area. Uh, then try to, if you find that there is truly a problem, uh, and that solution is going to address that problem. Then we try to connect the outcome to the problem, to the, to the proposed solution, and then make something and deliver it as quickly as possible using the agile process. So, um, uh, so, so we think that's, uh, uh, that's a process that works for us. Uh, it has worked for us in the last four years or so. Um, and um, a, a singular example is in the ER. Uh, when we uh, deployed, uh, the folks that came to us said, well, we need to change the front end of our ER solution. Uh, and we said, why? And they said, well, because it seems like it's hard to understand. So then we asked them to give us access to the ER and actually go in and look at what's happening there and uh, try to uh, decipher if that really, really was a problem, if that really was a problem. And we found out, no, it wasn't. You know, the people actually using that interface knew it like air traffic controllers. You know, it was for them, it was like this matrix thing. And, and you know, they knew everything that was happening and they could make a lot of sense out of it. Um, so it wasn't that. Uh, the real problem was that, uh, you know, patients were waiting too long. Um, patients uh, were not seeing a physician in time and they were not being discharged in a way that was optimal. 
Um, and so we changed those things by creating uh, digital dashboards in the ER that enable people to make decisions on their own rather than wait for a charge nurse to make a decision for them. And, uh, and since then, that has solved those problems that we set out to solve. It's amazing. Putting a design, root cause analysis, uh, right. tying that all back together in terms of transferring patient experience. Right. Awesome. I'm going to introduce our next panelist. Aaron Murray. Um, Aaron is the chief information officer of a stealth startup company, but hmm, we'll have to figure out who that is. Uh, and of course, he previously worked for Improvada. And uh, as many of you guys know, you can follow Aaron at A-A-R-O-N-M-I-R-I. Aaron's had a lot of leadership uh, experiences in healthcare IT, um, serving as a global chief information officer for a commercial healthcare cybersecurity organization. He's also spent a lot of time um, with uh, large information technology organizations, being a CIO, and also being very, very active in HIMSS. So now one of the areas you're an expert in, as of course, given what you worked before, <laughs> is cybersecurity, which, you know, is not, not top on anybody's list. Right. <laughs> Where are we on cybersecurity today? Is there enough investment? What's going on there? Well, great questions. And thank you for having me on the show. And uh, great seeing Sarah and Neil again. I really appreciate you guys uh, joining up today on the panel. You know, cybersecurity, where we are today, is a growing state. I would equate it to kind of, if for anybody who has young children, you're in the early years right now, you know, trying to learn how to walk, maybe starting to realize, go to school, you know, learn your ABCs. We're in that phase right now. We're nowhere near the teenage years, nowhere near the adult years that we should be as an industry, but we're getting there. We're growing up fast. Well, what we're seeing across the globe right now is a spend that is increasing exponentially but yet the threat vectors continue to outweigh what the spend can be in terms of mitigating factors. So to the degree of it, so one of the things I do is I sit on a number of national committees um, with the ONC that I was appointed to by uh, members of Congress. And we're looking at this from a, from a perspective of across the country, how can we mitigate the risk and lower the risk for everybody in terms of putting in good process and good policies to help encourage organizations to continue to move forward and, and adopt and adapt good techniques and good technology. So from a perspective of where are we, we're growing up, um, we're getting better, uh, getting better fast, but nowhere near where we need to be. We just got to keep on plugging away. Got it. So as you can tell, we've got awesome expertise today on the panel, three awesome experts, three different perspectives coming at it from different angles, all trying to improve the healthcare experience. So we're going to start with one of the hot topics really is telemedicine, telehealth investments. Kind of want to get your take as to what's happening. Is it viable? Is it working? Are we getting closer? Is this something that's going to transform medicine? Can we all stay at home and not have to worry? Uh, so so gonna ask, I'll start with those kind of questions. So I'm going to start with you, Sarah. What do you think? Where are we on this trend? Uh, same analogy that Aaron had. I'll say, although I'll say we're at the, probably the most nascent phase. It's out there. There's so many different uh, solutions for it. Like you think about even just this week, the announcement American Well, Anthem, Samsung coming together to have that health app so that uh, someone can reach out for a non-emergent situation. So the thing I'm seeing trending is that healthcare uh, agencies <clears throat> are taking, or systems are taking a little bit longer to get there than the health plans would like. So the health plans are getting in front of that and doing it themselves. That's not necessarily a good thing for the healthcare systems, because if you really want to get to a, a place of, of value-based care and the whole uh, integrated network, you're going to have to keep those patients with you and not have the health plan start to get there. So I'm hopeful that two things happen that we start to obviously partner with the health plans to make uh, telemedicine more available uh, routinely. Uh, but it's for people like us that maybe just need to like check on the kids they have pink eye or, hey, I had the flu and I really didn't need to go to the doctor. I just really needed to get some Theraflu this year. Mm -hmm. uh, but also the home health monitoring component of some of those chronically ill patients 
where I think really you can. So if mobility is a factor because you have multiple comorbidities, let's get that home monitoring kit in your hands and make it simple for people to connect. So there's a huge market for it. We just really, the technology's there too. It's really partnering with our business owners to make sure that we operationalize this because it's about the bandwidth of the people doing the telemedicine, not those of us providing the continuity to be able to make it happen. Got it. What do you think, Aaron? No, I think that she's, uh, Sarah's spot on. You know, I want to give a lot of credit to CMS. They recently floated the idea of doing uh, payments uh, for remote monitoring, and they're trying to encourage the adoption of the market to look at ways to reimburse appropriately. You know, one of the biggest problems with getting into telemedicine and telemonitoring is the upfront startup cost to get into that market. And if it's not a reimbursement, if there's not a business model, a lot of times hospital systems are operating on razor thin margins. They just don't have the capital required to get into that game. So whatever the federal government can do to continue to alleviate that burden on organizations will be very, very welcome. I was just speaking with a large organization in the upper Midwest that's trying to provide telemedicine in some very rural parts of the country. And the other problem they're running into is bandwidth. You know, you, you think about all these major cities. I'm in Boston. You know, you guys are in San Francisco. And, and you have all these interconnected cities. But once you get to the upper Midwest or even parts of my old hometown in Texas, you got nothing. You got DSL if you're lucky, and it's very difficult to provide connectivity in those fashions. So again, there's a lot of efforts going on to look at that and try to modernize the infrastructure across the country. But it's going to take a holistic approach to telemedicine beyond just payment and, and delivery to really being able to make this successful. Wow, definitely an issue of bandwidth even today at Moscone Center at the Google Next event, Neil, uh, which you've been attending. What do you think about this telemedicine telehealth issue? Uh, well, yeah, I, I just did a, a webinar about it yesterday uh, with Vizian and, um, and, and, and uh, explained what we are doing in telehealth. So about four years ago, when Dr. Steve Clasco, our president CEO, um, uh, came to Jefferson, uh, he, uh, he went all in on telehealth. You know, he always liked it when I worked with him at the University of South Florida also. Uh, he had started the implementation there. Uh, he wants us to look beyond just, you know, how do we make this financially uh, viable. You know, sometimes uh, certain organizations and industries have to, uh, you know, go all in. You know, they have to make that, uh, take that plunge and, uh, and not worry so much about uh, the total value of economics and then derive value once you start getting into it, right, which we've been doing. So we've uh, used, we created a brand called Jeff Connect, which is now pretty well recognized across the nation. We got a lot of our physicians, um, you know, certified uh, to provide telehealth services in multiple states. Uh, we looked at our population and saw where, uh, you know, we should do that and optimize for that. Then uh, we created curricula. So we have a telehealth facilitator certificate program. So we provide education also on it. Uh, we then started uh, creating some diversity around the offerings that we had in telehealth, not just the standard, uh, you know, uh, on-demand thing. We also created scheduled telehealth. Uh, built that with Teladoc into a pro into their uh, service. So, uh, so, so now we are co-developer with them, and we get uh, some licensing uh, revenue from that. Then uh, we uh, started expanding telehealth into uh, virtual rounds. So we actually uh, we use Zoom, the same system that you're using right now here. Uh, we use Zoom uh, to do that, uh, where uh, we, we we enable a patient and their family to connect. Uh, during the physician's rounds. So the patient doesn't have to explain what the physician said to their family and, you know, understand all the, all the medical terms the patient can, or uh, I don't have to, can do that with the patient. Or I don't have to find parking, try to figure out what floor yes. I'm in, right. catch the right. doctor just when yeah. they happen to be there. Yeah. Uh, okay. yep, yeah. Yep. 
Yeah, and then we've also done uh, second opinions. So, uh, so we do that via telehealth. For about 15 years or so, Jefferson's been doing Telestroke as a program where we have these in-touch robots that uh, are used at our system and at other systems, about 30 plus hospitals around, around the area. Uh, and we diagnose and help treat uh, remotely uh, patients with stroke. And then we also do follow-ups with that. Now you don't need to send a robot home for a follow-up. We do it with tablets like uh, Surface Pros and all of that. Uh, and then, um, uh, and then also we've expanded to, and this is a pretty neat area, uh, to pre-admission testing. Uh, you know, it turns out that you can do some pre-admission testing, uh, you know, without requiring the patient to come in. But wow. asking everybody to come in then causes uh, uh, everyone else to have to wait because in pre-admission testing you don't know what you might find. So sometimes it takes a long time to get done with a patient. Uh, so we've, uh, we've broken that out and uh, alleviated some of the pressure in terms of time for the patients that really need to come in. And then finally, we've also, because all of our uh, on-demand uh, telehealth uh, physicians are uh, ER physicians, uh, in the ER, we've reduced our left without being seen rate by providing teletriage. So, um, so we triage patients uh, in the ER using the telehealth platform. So there's tremendous opportunity and we have to get into this space. We have to build economies around it. Even if uh, reimbursement may not be available in a certain area, we have to explore other areas. And, but we do need the government and, and payers and others to start supporting this. Aaron, really appreciate what you're doing in that space. Wow, that is pretty wild. Okay, so I thought we were just a little bit from going from where we are to the Star Trek economy. It sounds like we, we've got some progress in, in, in some places. Uh, yeah. So anything you want to add to that, Sarah, Aaron? Yeah, I will, I, will, I will actually. So, you know, for folks that are really considering telehealth or, or, or telemedicine, it doesn't necessarily even need to go outside your four walls. Look for use cases within your facility that are easy. I'll give you some examples. One, we had an issue where our, our, billing, op, uh, our billing office needed to talk to our admissions folks, and they were simply doing reconciliation to end in a month. By enabling the video chat and walk through it really quickly, it, it lessened the time to close all those open um, and submit for, for claims by like a week. You know, another option is for discharges to allow for a clinician to see yeah. a, a patient who just got through with a surgery, make sure they're not having any negative effects, so they can go home. You know, you can easily submit the discharge process by letting them see that patient you know, versus having to come out of a sterile uh, area and those sorts of things. So look for easy wins within your hospital. Again, you could use something very simple for that. You don't have to do a lot of investment and then build your use cases out from that. Yeah, just like this, it would have been done. Exactly. That's awesome. Sarah? Yeah, so great use case idea, Aaron. And so obviously behavioral health is a huge issue across the nation, access to care and this limited amount of providers available to see patients. So we did the same thing. We've got uh, a psychologist that's set up in one office and we're using telemed. So your patient books an appointment and goes to another one of our sites, but they actually have a visit with that physician who's in one location, but multiple sites can have access to a physician for psych evals and behavioral health. So we're getting like 25, 35, 40 patients through a week for evaluations and consults and normally would have had to drive to those locations or couldn't go. And so we're, that's all in our LA County offices right now. So it's been probably our first big win in the telehealth space. That's awesome. Yeah, that's really awesome. Now, Actually, Neil, you mentioned something that actually reminds me of those teleradiologists, right? Like I have a couple friends that are teleradiologists like for, for these big firms. They, they're in testing all the time. Like yeah. they're getting certs all the time. Like they're going to go test for like 20, 30, 40 different states. Um, mm -hmm. Is there a movement? And I know the states are going to hate this and their boards for board certification. But is there a movement to actually standardize some of these certifications? Um, so it's not necessarily just state specific? For radiology? 
Well, everywhere, every yeah. one of these specialties that might be like, uh, you know, state driven for the state license. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I don't know about that. So that's not my area of, uh, of expertise, but uh, it will I mean, be great if, uh, if it were true. Uh, yeah, so so there are there are compact initiatives going on where multiple states are banding together to sort of harmonize and allow for reciprocity. Um, I think it gets very specific by discipline, but I know there's a lot of movement to do that. Again, a lot of it goes to also insurance and coverage and making sure that physicians are covered, the hospital systems are covered. So it's kind of moving slowly. But I, I do recognize, at least I've seen it on the federal government side, a lot of recognition that there needs to be some harmonization there with the respect that, you know, this has to be, we have to ferret out all the risk points to make sure that, you know, in no way is patient care anyway jeopardized. I'm saying that because we've got a shortage of physicians still, and especially in rural areas and if disadvantaged communities might right. be a way to actually create some waivers, right? CMS might be able to create some waivers to pave the way. So right. just think about that. Mm -hmm. well, thinking about that, and, uh, you know, we talked a little bit about value-based care, right? Uh, is this another fad or is it going to help the industry? I'll start with you, Aaron. No, I think absolutely it's, it's where things are going. Um, you know, there's a, there is a reluctance when it comes now, you're looking at more like bundled payments and how do you really streamline, you know, what that mechanism looks like and really focusing on quality. There was a pushback on the MIPS initiative because a lot of clinicians just simply didn't understand that. So I think there's more education needs to be done, but that's absolutely where things are headed. Um, again, I give a lot of credit to CMS listening to groups like HEMS and CHIME and, and trying to take into account that as I look at future reimbursement and say, okay, how do we really make sure that the multiplier and the qualifier for true quality care is there without, you know, making sure that you have a length of stay of over three days and those sorts of things. So it's a give and take. Um, I think we're learning and I'll use my analogy earlier. It's right now we're in the elementary years, um, but it's absolutely where things are going. Gotcha. Sarah, what do you think? Yeah, I totally agree. So you saw CMS appointed, uh, Seema Verma announced that, as I make it on my notes, Paul Mango from McKinsey uh, as chief of staff to continue to increase consumer choice for healthcare coverage. So absolutely. Um, when you start to really base payments on quality and patients can spend less money, which has always been one of those drivers, uh, we can start to achieve better health. And that brings down the total cost for everybody uh, in terms of value-based care. So it's absolutely important. A healthier society allows us to reduce those costs but to me, the fascinating part about value-based care has always been about creating opportunities for society to be healthier. And so when we think about just like the total, the total care, like we, we do coordinated care at Healthcare Partners is what we're really proud of. And that coordinated care is everything from, you know, how are you feeling today to do you have access to healthy food and how do we teach you with whether it's where you live and how you cook and how you take care of yourself because we are part of your, your life when you're healthy and when you're sick. And those are those pieces where value-based care really starts to uh, hit the pavement. It's not just when you are in the hospital. It's really your journey throughout your lifespan when you're outside of the hospital, outside of the clinic that's most important. So all the drivers are key, but you really establish that lifelong relationship with patients and with their providers. And that's where, that's where the true value comes into play. Wow. What do you think, Neil? Yeah, no, I think uh, for, if you're trying to build consumer-focused healthcare and uh, you know, transform this industry, uh, I think it's very important because uh, if you're trying to do that, you need to understand what's the total cost of delivering any kind of service, right? And in healthcare, we haven't really done that well enough. We, we uh, disperse that cost into different other areas. Some areas subsidize others. You know, we've got, got to start understanding what the real cost is of a service, uh, of a procedure, uh, we have to do that. And then it's better for the consumer also because then we can start accessing different types of markets. We can inform the market a little bit better, do price transparency, uh, you know, compete in different ways if we have to compete, uh, you know, and uh, 
for the same for the same consumer. But uh, most importantly, I think what it does is it gives us better intelligence or forces us to derive intelligence that tells us exactly what this cost is of the service that we provide. Um, and if we can enhance that uh, service quality wise, uh, if a consumer will accept a higher cost or if we can reduce the cost for providing that service uh, while not affecting the quality of the service that we provide. I think it's important. Wow, and this touches on some really interesting issues about as we move to AI and healthcare, you know, for both automation and decision support, right. this may be some of the things where they start identifying the trends uh, that are happening. So I'll start with Neil. How far are we away from augmenting humanity, improving patient care? <laughs> Depends on who you speak to. So, uh, yeah, I think. Uh, well, you mean like the vendor versus the physician versus the provider, or? Yes, yes. The the, the um, also sometimes uh, specifically with certain companies, uh, you know, claim to have solved the problem. But I think we're we're far away from it. Um, here at Google and and Google doesn't claim that they've solved some of these problems, and they're probably the company that's uh, investing the most in machine learning and AI, and especially in healthcare. So. Um, uh, so I think it's uh, it, it's still a bit of ways for us. We have to do a lot more math and a lot more research and a lot of uh, doing in that space and teaching these uh, programs uh, to um, to create you know do things that that are a little bit more enhanced than just you know differential kind of diagnosis. You know there are a lot of tools that already do that, um, and they they give you confidence intervals, all of that. Uh, so that's all available. We just haven't commercialized a lot of those from a consumer standpoint. Um, but uh, but that will happen. But it goes beyond that, right? I mean, uh, we want to be able to create uh, uh, almost companions to physicians, uh, even while they are performing a surgery, which a computer might not be able to do, right? Uh, we want to inform them um, while they're doing that, maybe even through AR and VR, you know, and overlay that um, uh, during the experience. Uh, there's a long ways to go, um, even in, in providing uh, exact point of decision-making support. Uh, for, for a physician, because I don't think uh, anyone, uh, not just uh, from, the, uh, from, the, from the physician or the provider standpoint, but also uh, from the legal standpoint and also from the patient standpoint, uh, I don't think people are yet ready uh, for a machine to tell them exactly what's wrong and prescribe something to them that they will then take and try to get themselves better. Uh, that requires a little bit of a culture shift, I think, um, and, and may require a generation or so to, uh, to pass through uh, until we believe that is possible. But uh, in that time, we have to start creating these types of things, not just for the US, but uh, you know, I, I come from India and um, originally, and, and so, you know, there, there aren't, there, there are large populations of people, and you mentioned it, Aaron, also, you know, there are uh, in the U.S. too, uh, who just can't get access to the right types of healthcare, you know, and so we've got to focus on those, those folks first, and if we are able to develop these types of machine learning and AI uh, algorithms that can provide uh, decisions or enable or enhance decisions, and then uh, provide the service to patients directly, uh, that's great. It's better than not having anyone. Right, you want an oncologist in in the middle of Rajasthan in India, you know you're not going to get one, you know. But if we have an AI that can advise somebody that can be accessed quite easily, uh, and then maybe supported by a physician if uh, you need to make make a really really important decision, uh, that would be great. Wow, so we're going to see digital assistance. We're going to see you know a, a big cultural shift that's going to be acquired, and a lot of training to get here before we're confident yeah. about what's going on. Uh, Sarah, what do you think? 
Yeah, so I think about use cases like, this is where we start to integrate the AI components along with the telemedicine component. So think of a patient who's been in the hospital that has chronic heart failure. So we're treating for CHF. We can send that patient home, and we know this today, with an iWatch that can monitor that patient's heart rate. So as it's looking for anomalies and it's feeding into the EMR, that physician can be alerted that there's an issue going on. So they can do an immediate intervention by calling that patient. And if we've also, they have the kind of connectivity that we do right now, boom, they jump online and they can connect with their physician right there in the home and either reduce the readmission or prevent their having to be an ER visit, et cetera. So we have to start where we are. Everybody's got a smartphone or just about everybody. There's gonna be something like 2 billion you know, smartphones on the planet by the next couple of years. You combine those with simple things you're already using like iWatches, like other components. So when you start to bring those pieces together, they are things that people already trust. They're things that people already know and they're the things that are already beginning to be integrated. So we think about you know, a robot taking care of us in 50 years, which I always joke, I hope that's true because I don't have kids and I'm not fully sure who's gonna take care of me at that point. But until then, I like the fact that it goes way beyond my 10,000 steps a day. It goes towards, if someone's paying attention to me, even at, even at my age, that if I end up with some kind of anomaly in my daily rhythm, whether it's heart rate or pulse or whatever's going on in different situations, that somebody might be watching or there'd be an AI alert to say, hey, you know what? Your temperature's been elevated for three days, but only by two degrees. Something may be wrong. It would give me the impetus to then go out and do something about it versus it becoming an adverse event. Wow. Wow. Any, any last words? Anybody want to jump in? So, Aaron. You know, I'll say this real quick. You know, that there was a study I just read that by 2020, there'll be 985 exabytes of healthcare data on the planet. You know, my follow-up question to that, which I haven't been able to find, is of that 985 exabytes, how much of that's actually valuable that we can actually mine and actually do something with that data? The right. problem with healthcare today is that a lot of the systems locked into proprietary formats or there are non-scalable types of data formats that are unable to be parsed out to really see what are some of those intricacies there. So only now are we able to get the right modalities in the hands of our, you know, of what I watch in terms of a patient or an Amazon Alexa at the house and all these types of interface points so as data grows and as usage continues and as consumer population gets more and more acclimated towards, hey, I'm going to take my own, you know, what, what's my, what's my heart, heart rhythm right now? What, what am I looking like? How am I breathing? What's my O2 rate? That's where we're really going to start seeing meat on the bone on this. And, you know, I'll, I'll close with this. I saw a funny graphic the other day where it had a, uh, a computer wheeling itself to the radiologist saying, help, I'm being sued. I don't know what to do. And the radiologist saying, oh, sorry, buddy, that just goes with the territory. It asks a lot of questions. What are we going to do when we get to that point where we have automated types of conditional, hey, you have X, Y, and Z, and suddenly there's something that some fallout from that. So there's a lot of cultural growing we have to do uh, beyond the technology, but we're getting there. Got it. And I thought my data was going to be safe. How's it going to be used? And who, who's responsible for the decision? That's, that's an even bigger, uh, high, higher level kind of situation. Uh, speaking about that, what do you guys think about 23andMe and Glaxo? <laughs> what does that say for the industry at the moment? So. Any, any comments? Well, just from the just from the genomic standpoint, you know, it's it's a, it's a uh, it's an important area because of uh, uh, you know the advances in precision medicine based on that, um, and um, but it's also a very very ethics centric kind of area where uh, we have to be very careful. Um, we have to have the right types of tracking and auditing systems. Uh, for either uh, the ingestion of data or, you know, at some point the redaction. If we, if somebody decides, well, I don't want this. Nobody's thinking about that sometimes. You know, at some point when uh, when the population gets even more educated, you might say, well, you know, I don't want, I want to take this stuff out. 
that I may have submitted at some point in time through consent or whatever. So, um, so I think we've got to start um, creating maybe in Congress, you know, some some specific bodies around that. I know I know some decisions have been made in the past on cloning and and the CRISPR technologies and what should and should not be done. But uh, beyond that, I think just on the uh, analysis of data and what is what is possible to be analyzed. You know, yesterday we we're having a discussion about uh, what if we uh, if we if somebody shared their genomic data, right? And they said, yes, this is fine. We saw it in the in the case of uh, somebody being arrested recently uh, as a result of open source data, genomic data, right? Now that is not really just your data. You know, in your genomic data, there's information about other people that you're related to. What about them? Should they have a say as to whether you can share that anymore? Uh, so I think I'm not answering your question very directly, uh, Ray, no, about no. vaccine and drinking, but <laughs> I'm trying to raise this, you know, uh, this question about, uh, you know, whose data it is and, and how should we manage that? Uh, you know, maybe maybe it should not be identifiable uh, at all. You know, it should just be for its its metadata that is in there. You know, there shouldn't be any uh, uh, any association with who you are. And maybe that's the way that that we go about it. I don't know. I'm not an expert on that, but uh, but it's it's going to be interesting in the next we, few years, five to ten years. You know, we we are happen. definitely treading in on the issue of data, yeah. data privacy. How does yeah. the data spun off an individual or, or who it belongs to, how it's worked right. with? Is it a property right? You know, do we trade on it? Um, these are some big questions people are asking. So anybody else want to jump in on that? You know, I'll say real quick that um, I would, for folks that are, you know, working with genomics, uh, the price point to do a genomic test and sequencing now has come to, I think, like a little over $1,000 a pop yeah. and it's dropping every year. So it's inevitable. We have to cross these thresholds. There's a lot of privacy concerns. There's nothing protecting uh, your genomic data from being accessed by insurance companies and or law enforcement, as we've seen. I mean, I've been pleasantly surprised to see a lot of cold cases solved because of genomics. I think that's phenomenal. But at the same token, there also needs to be some consideration point for privacy. And, and to your point, Neil, about you know what is what is congressional you know offices looking at. I know this has been raised before. I know there's a lot of hesitation to go there right now because people are still trying to figure out what do we know and what don't we know. Um, but I believe this question has to be answered at some point, and um, you know we'll see what happens. Well, I was originally worried that the 23andMe data was being sold to the Chinese government. I wasn't expecting it to show up to pharma, so <laughs> I'm like, oh, what's how's that going to work? I feel like it's a shameless plug for a November podcast. I had the trade commissioner from Finland uh, in the studio Saturday, and her episode will be out in uh, in November. And yeah. we, one of the things we talked about is Finland has an isolated gene pool. And because of that, they have a tremendous amount of genomic research that goes on. And so in a highly educated country, so obviously everybody there goes to college if they want to. So you've got tons of R&D companies and tons of physicians and different groups coming into Finland to do all kinds of research on what this isolated gene pool looks like from a, from a healthcare perspective. But then they, have, they also have quite a few immigrants coming to Finland and now starting to study how that's affecting that population. And they really do posture it as such that this is all about sharing and learning and finding solutions to healthcare problems and being able to get in front of things early. Um, but they are also very honest about the fact that it, it can sound quite nefarious if you're not uh, sharing that information appropriately, you're not really marketing it that way. So I think where they start to trend on what they are using that type of research for will be a global indicator for all of us. You know, I've got, you know, probably want to interview these guys, Richie at Waru and Michael De Palma. They're a company called Humanity.co. Mm -hmm. Check it out. They've been trying to figure out how to get data privacy into a property right. So right. it might be fun stuff for you guys. 
And Ray, can I add one other thing? You know, uh, I know of some researchers that do a, collect a lot of genomic data, and you know, some of them have even expressed this concern that, uh, and you mentioned Finland, that so it sparked that thought in my head. You know, it's a very uh, homogeneous kind of society, and and you know, so you can derive a lot of understanding uh, about a, a particular, uh, not just country, but a, a race of individuals and and all of that. And uh, there are two things that can arise from that. You know, there are lots of correlations being uh, uh, being uh, obtained through genomic data you know, on even facial, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, like uh, what you look like, maybe the length of your your upper lip, you know, is connected to a, the presence of a certain gene that also determines other things in you. So it's not like, oh, I have to collect your genomic data anymore. Facial recognition programs could, uh, could, could, um, uh, determine an issue in you or or maybe a, a benefit in you either for hiring or whatever you know uh, and uh, and say okay well no no to this person or yes to someone else you know choices could be made that way and is that ethical and then also from a uh, global standpoint uh, as weapons of mass destruction and all of that you can you can just as you can precisely target um, you know, the, uh, the bio warfare of a particular person's disease, you can do the reverse where you can specifically target maybe uh, a certain uh, gene uh, kind of type, you know, within people and, and, and eliminate people that way, you know. So that's all major concerns that we have to address. Wow. We are trying to get out of the scary dystopian world here. We've got the uh, healthcare issue here with uh, Sarah Richardson at uh, Healthcare Partners, Aaron Murray at a secret startup, uh, stealth startup, but a security expert and global CIO, Neil Gomes, Chief Digital Officer at uh, Jefferson Medical Center, Jeff Health. And more importantly, uh, we're talking about what's happening in the healthcare world, what's happening, what are the hot trends. This is episode 115 on Disrupt TV show. Um, Let's switch to talent. Here's a very interesting shift that's happening. We're talking about all these cool new technologies, all these cool new business models, things that are transforming. Uh, what's going on with getting the right talent? It seems like a talent drain starting to happen with tech companies and insurers. Everyone's like pulling all the top talent out of what's going on in the healthcare delivery market. Are you guys seeing that? I'll start you with you, Aaron. Yes, in fact, um, you know, you mentioned being part or, of the Are you the poster child for that? <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's one of those things that finding the right people for making sure that, that what you're trying to shoot for and also where things are going in the next five years is critical. You're seeing a lot of the big boys being able to pull the, the top talent, you know, the Amazons, the Microsofts, the Googles of the world, pulling phenomenal people that know what they're doing. There's only a handful of folks out there that truly understand AI or machine learning or those types of hot topics. So. What, what you're looking for now is for universities and others to start churning out you know, courses and, and, and really learnings towards making sure the next generation understands it so that my kids learn how to code and then learn how to do blockchain and learn all these different facets that are coming out that will be standard as part of our society in the next five or 10 years. So right now there is a deficit, um, it is known. I also give a lot of credit to emerging countries like India and others that with some phenomenal talent is especially around the machine learning and AI space and the things they're churning out are just top notch. I think you're gonna to begin to see a globalization where China and India and other countries are really emerging with these talents, where how can they export that talent to countries that are hungry like the US, where we're developing so many new types of applications, particularly in healthcare. So um, it's gonna be interesting and, and it, is a, it is a deficit. And I think that we are also doing that in every industry. Gotcha. Neil, what are you guys seeing? How do you guys hire for talent? I saw those big teams of designers, <laughs> floors of folks doing design thinking, yeah. you know, a lot of wild, yeah. crazy stuff over there. 
Yeah, I think it depends on location. It also depends on, uh, so we, we are a little fortunate that we are in Philadelphia. There's a lot of gentrification, lots of younger talent also coming in, uh, people that are hungry to learn more and, and, and do more with their careers. And, um, uh, but beyond that, I think it's also um, the, the why, you know, is very important. Like why uh, uh, does your company exist? What does it do? And how does it connect? And um, in healthcare, we are very poor at, at, at creating or developing a culture around what we do and why we do it. Uh, it's, it's actually easy for us because, you know, we are uh, doing some of the most noblest kinds of things, right? And, uh, and so we market that within our teams. You know, we, we tell people, look, you could work at these large companies and it'd be a great job and you bring about a lot of impact. But, you know, we save lives here every day. You know, and the software you create is going to be doing that. You know, and, and a lot of people want to have that meaningful, uh, uh, you know, impact from their lives into society. So, uh, so, so, so we, uh, we pass that message on, which is the truth. It's not being in any way manipulative or anything of the sort. It is what we do. Uh, and then the other thing is, uh, you know, I think uh, the, my concern is that uh, we're reaching a point where we are going to start hitting these barriers, just limitations of what we can do and think uh, and, and uh, create, you know, it's like stuff is getting really complex, you know, in the oh, data yeah. science space and machine learning, we're starting to hit the thresholds of, you know, how smart a person is, you know, and what they can actually do unless they're sitting in a, uh, in a space for, for 24 hours and trying to figure things out. Even that is becoming, you know, almost impossible. So we are going to have to start working very closely with machines and machine learning programs and then also trust that output almost like as if it were completely true and then try to use what we are really good at which is associations and you know thinking completely out of the box and outside a program kind of and then help the machine to then make that real you know it's going to be a completely different world i think in about five to ten years wow that's crazy what do you think sarah I would start with culture when it comes to with your hiring teammates and what's I think what's probably trending more and more, and this is not new to any of us, obviously, is the ability to find talent wherever it is. So uh, we work in a true shared service IT organization, which allows us to have talent all over the country and all over the world. And when we're looking for roles to fill, it's who has the talent to be able to do this. And they can be absolutely anywhere in most cases. There's that whole side of your organization. You have to appreciate the fact that engineers can be anywhere, um, developers can be anywhere, et cetera. Um, everybody has to be a cultural fit. And there's some recent research out there that shows you literally have only two weeks to make an impression on a teammate on whether or not they want to stay with your company. They might stay with you for two years, but they might be looking after week two. So that initial component, yeah, truly, of hiring correctly, but make a good impression. And so for all the technology we have out there and for all of the where things are headed, there's that personal touch that's so key and so important. And so even in my role today, I mean, I meet with every single new teammate that comes in the door. And what, do you, what is important to you? What do we need to do for you to want to be here, et cetera? So they always feel like they have that personal connection because we're heavy in the merger and acquisition space. And so there's new people coming on every single day. There's new companies. People are always freaking out for their jobs. And without having that constant communication to say, here's what's available to you. Here's why you matter to this organization. Here's why you should want to come in every single day. Um, I always go back to, you know, you think about uh, Patrick Lencioni's Three Signs of Miserable Job. People have to know why, have to know how they're measured, know why they matter, know that they're not anonymous. Those are those still remain those core competencies that as technical and as crazy as these jobs get, 
people want to know when they come in the door, like, good morning, Sarah, how are you? You know, what are the things you're working on? Neil's point, how it ties back to healthcare and, and why things are important. So even in project kickoffs and project status meetings and all things we're still required to do, you know, I've got great BI people doing these amazing dashboards that talk about all the things IT is delivering to the organization. I make sure the team see those too. It's not just for the senior executives. It's so when someone says, well, you're an interface programmer, did you know your interfaces were these top three projects? Oh, and by the way, they helped us get better at claims. They helped us get better at contracting. They helped us get better at any kind of efficiency that really improves the lives of our physicians and of our patients. And so those are things that people forget about. And it's not about four-year degrees anymore either. I think about teammates that are already on my team and teammates that are looking to come into the industry. There are certifications that are far more valuable and powerful when you go into technology than even that degree anymore. So I'm hopeful that we continue to move away from saying, hey, guess what? You graduated at 22, you're a whiz kid. You got your master's at 24, good for you, but you're $200,000 in debt. There's a part of that path that can be important. There's also people I'm saying, you know what? Graduate, go get a programming, go get programming degrees, different certifications, and those are as equally valuable in our ecosystem. But those are not the things that we always talk about as pathways for, for students, even and for uh, adults, learners today. And so as we head towards those type of environments, those are ever more important that there are multiple paths to success, talent procurement, and more importantly, creating a culture where people want to be through organization for a long period of time. You know, we're definitely seeing that with competency-based educations popping up, people trying to figure out how to use those certifications, definitely with a health shortage in healthcare uh, talent as well. Uh, the other big thing that, that's kind of hitting all of us on all different fronts is mergers and acquisitions, right? We're seeing a lot of healthcare system mergers, another big one announced uh, this week, I think, uh, you know, and, and you're seeing that the, uh, you know, is it, is it making care better? Is it, is it changing the way you guys deliver IT, good, bad, indifferent, uh, or, you know, or is it just, I mean, is, is this just con continuation of uh, what's been going on in healthcare for the last 20 years? So I'll start with you, Sarah. What do you think? I'm in the process of being acquired. Uh, so, for, and that's been part of my life uh, kind of always. And it's, it's absolutely important. If we're going to, if we're going to continue to uh, lower cost, improve quality, um, create environments where we can have that, um, service line expansion that's available. So if you want to keep a patient in your ecosystem, you have to have all those service lines available. And even the capital investments, you know, Aaron talked about how expensive it is to set up, set up a telemedicine, for example, to create those capital investments, those opportunities, you're going to continue to see the mergers and acquisitions that are necessary for those environments to take place. So um, at the same time, when these companies start to morph together, there's, there's still a ton of work to be done and there's still a lot of jobs out there to be had. So what I tell my teammates now, even my colleagues, don't worry about the person that's going to be your competition or what's going to happen to the mergers of your teams. Be fluid, be open to it, be part of the merger and acquisition and be really familiar with what that means, not just from a healthcare perspective, but from a business continuity and long-term trajectory perspective. Because when you understand the business and the drivers and the economies, as well as you understand how we can apply technology to solve some of those needs, then you're, then you're in a sweet spot of you're really handling two different things at once. So we become operators and technologists and that's something really only we can do from our seats today. Wow, great. Neil, what do you think? Yeah, I see it as an opportunity many times. You know, we get a chance to learn from someone who's been in a similar industry, but I mean, the same industry, but, uh, uh, you know, a different type of environment. Uh, we get to also, if that environment needs some kind of change or they want something that we've done or, or, or we want something that they've done, uh, you know, it presents a really nice opportunity for us to do that. Uh, and um, I, I think it keeps things exciting and engaging. 
Um, it also exposes us to a different culture, you know, which is, to me, is exciting. Uh, our team runs on, on principles, and we have about 12 principles that guide our team. You know, many times, uh, it's a great way to, to start exploring the other organization or for them to explore us when they start discovering the way we do things. In my space, it's a little bit different uh, because not too many organizations have an innovation group, uh, you know, in, in healthcare have an innovation group, have developers on their teams, have designers. So many times for me, it's a tremendous opportunity when, when we do something like that, when we do an M&A, because now it brings a new person that we can work with and, and scale some of our solutions also. Yeah. That's wonderful. Aaron, last word on this topic. Yeah, no, I think I agree with both Sarah and Neil. It's absolute opportunity. There's a lot of markets right now that are, are lacking access to certain types of specialists. And you're seeing, you know, folks with more comorbidities emerge in some of these markets. A case in point in Dallas, we had a lot of kids that were diabetic, had asthma, and had other conditions, you know, potentially all the way leading to renal kidney failure down the road if they didn't take care of the diabetes. So where, where do you have all those specialists? Well, you have to get them from somewhere. So seeing systems come together and seeing these ACOs come together and really seeing these clinicians start, start really cross-training that, that information can only serve to benefit the patient. Also, realize that the larger you get, the more buying power you have. So the cost of overall delivery of service goes down. So the patient ultimately benefits. Now, one may say, hey, you're limiting competition and you're limiting uh, you know, potential for, for there to be two CIOs versus one CIO. Sure, there's always that. But even in the, in the for-profit commercial delivery side, you have that same thing too. So the important thing is, what are you doing it for? What are you in the business for? And like Neil said, you're here to save lives. So what will ultimately save more lives? Got it. Makes sense. So yeah, so we're, we're seeing these massive trends here. We're here with Sarah Richardson, Aaron Murray, Neil Gomes, uh, episode number 115, talking about healthcare, what's changing in healthcare, what's hot. Uh, quick lightning round. Let's talk about what's happening and uh, let's see what's going on. So real quick, ACOs. Um, are they helping, hurting? What do you think on ACO, Sarah? Uh, so, you know, I think about uh, risk, reward, incentives for doing better and uh, some of the quality outcomes that are out there. They're important. They're part of where, where we're headed. We continue to it was for alternative payment methods, move towards value-based care. ACOs and clinically integrated networks allow you to sort of learn to walk before you run. Um, they're not going away because the concepts behind them and why they're important are, yes. are really what's at hand. And so I feel like, for those that are good at it, keep doing it. For those that are trying to figure it out, there's a lot to be learned from. And uh, it's not gonna, it's just, it's, it's here to stay. So learn how to play in that sandbox and reach out to those that are doing it well if you are having a challenge really putting it into play in your system. Aaron. I think they're here to stay. I think we're still learning a lot of things. Case in point, um, I go to one of my previous lives in pediatrics. We were creating a pediatric ACO. A lot of these community-based doctors just simply don't have the means and the mechanisms that a lot of the larger system physicians do. So really having to educate them on how to do referral patterns, using your EMR and all these sorts of things as a part of your ACO are challenges and, and those step stones. The good news is that ACO model, as Sarah was just saying, has been around for a little bit of time now. So ask questions, get off the, get off the horse and make it happen. Um, because if you don't, you're going to be left behind. Neil, what do you think? Oh, Neil, accountable care organization. Um, Ray, I'm having a little bit of trouble hearing you. So, uh, so, so what, was the, what was the question that you asked? No problem. On accountable care organizations, what do you think? Here to stay? Good, bad? Are they going to make it? Yeah. Oh, all right. I think I'm we got some technical things. Well, but, uh, no problem. We got some uh, technical we got some technical difficulties yeah. on Neil, so no big deal. Uh, cybersecurity. Let's move to the cybersecurity topic. Uh, Neil, if you can hear me, cybersecurity, is it going to get better or worse? Where are we on that? 
Uh, I don't think we've got Neil. Um, Aaron, cybersecurity. Uh, yep. I heard that hey. one from you. Oh, oh, okay. Okay. Go, Neil. It's you. Oh, go, Neil. Go, it's for you. go for it. Sorry. I, yeah. yeah, I heard that one from you, uh, Ray, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go first on that. Um, I'm hoping that you can hear me. Uh, the, um, uh, yeah, on cybersecurity, I think, um, you know, there's a long way we have yet to go, but, uh, but I think we've made some good strides. Uh, again, machine learning and AI probably will come to our rescue, and then uh, it'll be all about uh, who has the better uh, AI program to uh, to secure their data and their networks. You know, so um, so I think uh, I think uh, there's a lot more to be done, a lot more to be understood, and then the mashup between these two uh, sciences has to happen. Kind of, you know, the networking and the and and the data sciences into uh, machine learning and all of that, and trying to build actual com you know consumer products that are easily understandable uh, by, uh, by people implementing them. Now, I think a bigger problem that we have is, uh, uh, is not really, uh, is also educating people within our systems. You know, we still do some of the dumbest things, you know, <laughs> and clicking phishing emails and all of that. And that's really what lets people in. Uh, so some of that uh, white hat stuff and associated with training, I think is something that we as healthcare organizations really need to do and take it up to all levels of leadership. No, make, no, don't make any exclusions. <laughs> hey, my Outlook email has been reset so many times and my UPS yeah. package is still coming. I have no idea who sent those things. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, uh, <laughs> security, is it getting better or worse, Aaron? Uh, it's getting better. Um, as I said a little earlier, you know, that, that we're still an evolving uh, industry in terms of things, but we're, we're getting a lot better. You know, I give a lot of credit also to, I'll, I'll talk about the regulation side of things. If you look at the proposed TEFCA language uh, that's coming out in terms of from, from, the, uh, from HHS, from the ONC, there is a whole section related to identifying people accurately, identifying devices accurately, and how are they connecting via secure API, those sorts of things. As the right language is introduced for mechanisms like TEFCA, that's where the culture and the industry is really gonna evolve. So it's a hand-in-hand -hand approach of better technology, better people, that's what Neil was saying, better people. And then of course, better uh, policy at the other hand of it to make sure that we're always encouraging the right adoption of, of uh, processes and, and things and technology. Now for some of our viewers, they don't even know that these are all open protocols to, to get connected to telemetry right. or any of these devices. So they're, they're pretty insecure at the moment. Sarah, better or worse, security? Better, but better, but a worsening threat in terms of the fact that the smarter we get and the more things that we throw at cyber security, the fact that it's never going to go away, you're never going to be safe enough. There's always going to be this threshold of something that's because for all the good guys like us that are working towards making it safe, there's, there's many bad guys working to, to exploit some of the vulnerabilities that we have out there. So it's a couple of things. Number one, it's a consistent education of all of us as consumers, as, as just people who walk the earth. It's not an IT problem. When you think about password protection and not phishing for emails and what are you sharing out there on the web, that's as true for yourself as your personal and your children and your families as it is for our patients that are out there because we are all of those things. And so people talk about cybersecurity. I'm like, it's a, it's a global thing and awareness It's important. So Neil's point, we educate everybody, including uh, our senior executives. It's part of our ongoing conversation with them. But then it's about the consumer approach of, and we talked about GDPR briefly, you know, general data protection regulation. That will, that will become a worldwide thing. And the traceability of data. And eventually you think about your virtual avatar, who you are and the digital crumbs you leave behind and how you will eventually use blockchain to manage that. Those are all things that we're learning in school, that we're proliferating throughout our organizations, and that we as professionals should be talking about and not as buzzwords, but really like, how do you use these things to keep yourself safe? Because again, it's good guys versus the bad guys, and there are equal parts of them out there in the world today.
Mm -hmm. Wow, this has been wonderful. This is like a sub-segment of the healthcare roundtable we did at the Transformation Summit. Uh, we'll be back again December 13th and 14th in Las Vegas for those healthcare professionals interested. Uh, this has been really awesome. We've been learning here from Sarah Richardson, CIO, Healthcare Partners at DaVita Medical Group. You can follow her at Twitter at Concierge Leader, Neil Gomes, Chief Digital Officer at Thomas Jefferson University and Jefferson Health uh, at Neil, N-E-I-L-G-O-M-E-S. And of course, Aaron Murray, Chief Information Officer of a stealth startup company. Now he's worked at tons of places, previously worked at Improvada. You can follow him at A-A-R-O-N-M-I-R-I. -I. More importantly, this is episode number 115, our healthcare issue. Uh, we're gonna have a lot more of these going forward. And uh, thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks for being part of the alumni. Happy Friday and welcome to Disrupt TV again. So thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Thanks everyone. Thank mm -hmm. you.